you've got a Bible, go ahead and make your way to Mark chapter 2 if you haven't already. This morning, I want to ask you if you've ever done something bizarre to get something you really want. Have you ever done something bizarre out of your ordinary to get what you want? Have you ever been that person who saw the news that Chick-fil-A is coming to town in your neighborhood and camped out overnight in the parking lot? Because you know, if you're one of the first 50 there, get free Chick-fil-A for a year. If you didn't know that, you'll be searching where the next Chick-fil-A is going in near you. Or maybe you're that person that calls into the radio contest, even though that's not your personality, but you really want those Taylor Swift concert tickets. Kevin, who's on our team, he said that he has a friend that entered this contest where you get to win a car, but the contest is you had to keep your hand on the car longest. Now, his friend went, he put his hand on the car, and he didn't leave, there, leave it there for minutes, not for hours, but for days. He lost his job, but won the car. We do things that are bizarre to get things we want. As parents, you know this, you work really hard so your kids don't have to go without. You love your kids. This question I wanna ask this morning, I think the question this text is asking us, what will we do to get people to Jesus? What will we do to get people to Jesus? To answer that question, I want to ask, make a few theological observations. Then I'll land on two practical implications for us at church. So two theological observations and two practical implications. What's going on in this text in the book of Mark, if you read Mark, it's a beautiful text. He's talking and he's showing the, the work of Jesus. His Jesus is the servant. He's caring for and preaching about the gospel. He's saving people. He's um, healing people. He's going city to city, just acting out of his own mercy. And he's came back. He's already been to Capernaum once. He came back. And there's a crowd waiting for him. So pick up in the first observation in verse 3 that we see. We learn that Jesus is our only hope in all things. Jesus is our only hope in all things. Look at verse 3. And they came, bringing him, to the para- bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And they, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw, the men, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So these friends have a friend that's a paralytic. He's paralyzed. He, it seems like he can't even walk or can't even use his hands or his feet. He's laying on a bed. And they heard Jesus was coming to town. And they needed to get their friend to Jesus. My guess is that this friend and the friends around him have exhausted all their resources. They've been to the doctors. They've prayed to other gods. They've been told there's no medicine for this. There's no way you cannot be paralyzed. 
And then the news starts to begin to spread about this guy named Jesus. And Jesus had healed the demonic plagued men. He's been healing the blind. He's been doing miraculous works. And when they hear of this guy named Jesus, they say, when is he coming back? He shows up and these friends gather around their paralytic friend and they put him on a mat and they start to carry him over the hill and they get over the hill and they see the house. And you imagine their emotions when they see the house. All they see is that it's packed to the gills. There's people standing outside listening from afar so they can see, hear Jesus. There's no way to get in. There's no way to get to Jesus. I can imagine the hopelessness that creeped into the paralytic soul. I mean, I've been trying so hard to get rid of this disease. I've been trying, I've been praying, I've been doing all I can to be healed from this disease. And these friends thinking, we, we tried, we're doing our best. Their best didn't stop them. They looked at the house and said, we're getting this guy to Jesus. They knew this singular truth, that Jesus was their friend's only hope. Jesus was their friend's only hope. And they get to this house, they climb up on the roof, and they cut a hole in the ceiling. I cannot emphasize that enough. If you're familiar with this passage, don't let it pass you. They cut a hole in the ceiling. Could you imagine being in a small group? You're doing your Bible study and, and just drywall starts falling from the ceiling. And all of a sudden there's four faces looking, up at, looking down at you, you're looking up at them. I mean, as a preacher, babies aren't distracting while we preach, but this might be, this might be distracting to be able to preach the Bible. They knew they had to get to Jesus. No matter what it cost, they had to get to Jesus. And you may be resonating today with this paralytic. You've, you have physical ailments that are, have caused you so much pain. You have that relationship that doesn't seem to be on the mend. You're tired of having to worry about this pandemic, you're ready for Jesus to end it, and your hope meter keeps dwindling down. May I remind you this morning that Jesus still is our only hope. He is our hope and foundation. When we go to Jesus, we never get stiff-armed. There's always room. He's not only our only hope for our, our diseases and our ailments, he's our only hope for our sin. When they lower him down, Jesus doesn't say, you're healed. Jesus looks at him, says, your son, your sins are forgiven. I don't know if this, if this is you, but if I'm that paralytic and I'm being lowered down, I'm laying on the floor of this house, everybody's looking down on me, still in amazement of this scene. I'm just waiting for him to heal me. And he says to me, your sins are forgiven. Like, cool, Jesus, but I'm still paralyzed. What he didn't know, but Jesus did know, is that his 
paralyzation, him being a paralytic was not his biggest problem. His sin was his biggest problem. And that doesn't diminish that he still has illness. He still is a paralytic. Jesus cares about him being paralyzed because he heals him. He tells him later, get up and walk. But Jesus cares about more than just our physical suffering. Jesus cares about our eternal suffering. Jesus doesn't just want our life to get better. He wants to have life with us. Yes, friend, the the God of this universe, the creator of our world, doesn't just want to be our genie. He wants to be our king. He wants to have life with you and me. Isn't that amazing that Jesus doesn't just want to fix our problems. He wants to have nearness with us. He wants to know our life. He wants to sit with us in the morning as we just gaze upon his beauty. He's not just some miracle worker. He's our king. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're, you're, you're here or you're watching this morning because you've exhausted all the options. Your hope meter is at rock bottom. You do not know where to go. Jesus hasn't moved. He's still there for you. He's still got you. And maybe you're not a Christian today and you've exhausted those resources and you're just checking this out to see another source. And I want to tell you, if you put your faith in Jesus today, he'll have you. Turn from your kingship of yourself, turn from your pride of yourself, and turn toward Jesus. He'll have you right now. Tell Jesus, Lord, I know I have problems, I know I have sins, I know I have issues in my life, I know I've made mistakes, but I give all that to you. He'll not tell you to fill out a form. He'll not tell you to walk through a checklist. He'll tell you, come to me, I'll have you. That's the gospel. These friends knew that Jesus was their only hope, which leads us to our second theological observation from this text, that Jesus is not just our only hope in all things. Jesus is sovereign over all things. Look at verse 6. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But so you may know, I love the savage line from Jesus. Just so you know, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. You can imagine, first of all, how mad these Pharisees were by their sermon being interrupted by a guy coming through the roof. They probably said to themselves, they should have showed up on time like we did. Who are these guys? I got here on time. I registered for the service. And then they got even more mad because Jesus says something that threw them off. He says, your sins are forgiven. And in their hearts they say, 
Only God can do that. This man is blaspheming. What they didn't know is they actually had really good theology. They just didn't know who they were speaking to. Because Jesus is not just some healer. He's not just some prophet. He's not just some dealer. He's not a healer. He's not just some miracle worker. He is God. He is the son of God incarnate with us. And he's in their house. And Jesus perceives the spirit. He perceives these religious leaders' spirit. He feels their angst. He says, just so you know, the son of man has authority to forgive sins, i.e., The Son of Man is sovereign over all things, physical and eternal. This this verse, Son of Man, isn't just a passing verse. We often call Jesus as Messiah or Christ or Son of God, but Jesus' favorite reference or title for himself was the Son of Man. This has connotations that he's the new Adam, that he's the, the representative of mankind, but it has a deeper reference. It references back to Daniel chapter 7. When Daniel has these crazy visions, if you've read Daniel and you scratch your head, don't worry, almost everybody does. He's having these visions, these vile and destructive beasts are destroying the world. And these beasts represent the kings, the the vile and evil kings of the world. And these beasts are conquering and the Ancient of Days shows up in chapter seven. The Ancient of Days is God the Father. And he ends the reign of all these beasts. And after he ends the reign, Daniel has another dream. Pick up and listen, listen in to verse 13 and 14, Daniel chapter 7. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, they came, there came one like the Son of Man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom for all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus says he's the son of man, he's not saying that in light terms. He's saying, I came to bring a new kingdom, a new world, that one that is never ending and everlasting, one where everybody's healed and everybody's forgiven. Jesus didn't just come to save souls and he also just didn't come to heal our bodies. He came to bring a kingdom. Daniel chapter seven is the most beautiful passage in the Bibles. And what it's teaching us is this. He, if he's just a healer, that's pretty easy. But it takes, a lot of, it takes something more to forgive sins. For Jesus to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, penalty has to be paid. When Jesus heals somebody, Life can move on. When Jesus forgives somebody, he has to die. And that's exactly what he did, didn't he? He forgives and he forgives and he forgives. And on that cross, that paralytic sin was paid for. You and I's sin were paid for. You know, the Son of Man was buried. And on the third day, the Son of Man rose up, didn't he? He rose in the grave and he proved that Daniel 7 is true. My kingdom is not going to end. And one day, the same son of man that rose from the grave, that son of man is going to crack the sky like these guys cracked the roof. And when he comes down into our world, we're not going to heal him, but he is going to heal us. 
I can't wait for that day when we don't have to worry about paralytics anymore. We don't have to worry about cancer anymore. We don't have to worry about wheelchairs and crutches. We don't have to worry about surgeries and, and diseases. We don't have to worry about stupid masks to wear. That day can't come sooner. I can't wait. Can't wait to have to worry about winter for my joints to ache in my body, do all the surgeries I've had. Can't wait to not have to worry about only living with one kidney. Can't wait to stop going to funerals. Jesus is coming back. The Son of Man didn't just come, he's returning. Johnny Erickson Tata, some of you may be familiar with, he's a faithful woman of God, lived most of her life as a quadriplegic, suffering, but joyfully. And she says this about her experience as a paralytic and when she meets Jesus. She says, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. Then when my, as my um, new, perfect, glorified body, standing grateful on grateful legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands. I'll say, thank you, Jesus. He'll know what I mean, because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his suffering. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You're right when you said the world would bring us trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It would have never happened had you not given me the bruising and the blessing of that wheelchair. Then the real ticker tape parade of praise would begin. All the earth would join in the party. And at that point, Christ would open up our eyes to the great fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we've ever experienced on earth. And when we're able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus will wipe away our tears. She says this, I find it so poignant. That finally at the point when I do have the use of my own arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because God will. There's coming a day that we don't have to worry about any physical ailment. We don't have to stress about how our kids are doing. Our bank accounts won't have the final word on our lives. Our school choices won't have the final words on our life. Our job loss won't have the final word on our life. And thanks be to God, our sin does not have the final word on our life. Because the Son of Man has came, he's died, he's risen, and he's coming again to rescue us, fill our hearts with joy, and restore our bodies. And we will be praising him for eternity upon eternity. That's the Son of Man. Jesus is not just our only hope in all things. He is sovereign over all things. The question now is, what, what do we do about this? I want to give us two practical implications. First, have faith in Jesus to do something. Have faith in Jesus to do something. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, Jesus saw their faith, not the paralytic's faith. He's looking through the roof. He sees faces looking down at him. He saw their faith. 
Jesus responds when we have faith in him for others. Let me say that again. Jesus responds to us when we have faith in him for others. These men believed, if I just get him to Jesus, they probably tried to heal him themselves. They knew their shortcomings. They knew they can't heal him. They knew they couldn't save him. If I just get him to Jesus. Many of us are, are terrified of being on mission with Christ because we don't feel good at evangelism. We don't feel confident in our way to articulate the gospel. We have sin and we live in shame. We think, oh, I can get my life together before I tell anybody else about Jesus. Well, I didn't read my Bible much this week. I haven't taken many theology classes. What if they ask a question? And all those things are important, good, and you should train into those. You should be equipped in those. But when I read my Bible, I see a lot of unimpressive people getting people to God. Because when unimpressive people get people to Jesus, who gets the praise? God gets the praise. We are called not to save people, to get people to the Savior. Do we have that type of faith? Do we have that type of faith that says, I'll do anything. I know my confidence isn't in my eloquence, my words. I know my confidence isn't in my ability to, to serve. I know my confidence isn't in my business title or the house size. My confidence is in Christ, in Christ alone to redeem and heal people. So I'm, I'm urging you, college part, to pray earnestly, scary prayers, and practice, practice mission that may be scary for you. That may look like talking to that family member that you've given up on. Do you believe there's no way, there's no way God can save them? Talking to that friend that you're worried about ruining your friendship with them if you confront them with their belief in Jesus. Parents, are, are you living by faith in your parenting or manipulating your kids through fear? Are you praying for them when they sleep and saying, God, I can't do this. You can't do it. You can't. God can though. Have you given up on that wayward child? No, there, there's no... There's no hopeless cases in the kingdom of God. Have faith in Jesus to do something. Secondly, work creatively and urgently to help people meet Jesus, get to Jesus. Work creatively and urgently to get people to Jesus. I can't emphasize this enough. They tore a hole in the roof. This is creativity at its best. It honestly sounds like youth ministry. It sounds like something a youth pastor would do. Facilities team is freaking out at this moment. They, they needed to get to Jesus. They had a problem. The problem was their friend was a paralytic. They had a solution. Jesus was in town. They had a problem with their solution. The house is full. And most of us stop right there. 
Oh, we can't do it. No, it's, it's impossible. Could you imagine this conversation when they see the house is full? Friend one, uh, I, man, I, we should have got him there sooner. We should have showed up sooner. What, what do we do? Friend two, we just come back tomorrow, make sure we get here early enough. Friend, friend three, that sounds good. Like we, we'll get here first thing in the morning, 6 a.m., 5 a.m., make sure we get a spot. Friend four, hear me out. What if we cut a hole in the roof? Sounds good. Let's do it. Let's go to the house, cut a hole in the roof. This is creativity. Creativity is not to be unique. When we hear creativity, we don't think, we often think it's flashy, cool, make sure to have cool Instagram posts. And if that's you, that's awesome. But the goal of creativity is mission. The goal of creativity is to get people to Jesus. I'm, that's why I love College Park Church. We know it's hard to reach unreached people groups, so we have thought of creative ways to partner with ministries and unreached people groups, send people to unreached people groups to do creative things to help people get to Jesus. So we build hospitals, we translate Bibles, we serve in different communities to try to get them to Jesus. We partner with ministries in Brookside and throughout our city to build bridges that can bear the weight of truth. That's creativity. We plant churches throughout our city, like partnering with the YMCA, because we want to see people get to Jesus. That's creativity. Through this pandemic, we've tried to reach people and serve people through virtual and in-person means. That's creativity. The goal of creativity is not to be new and cool. The goal of creativity is to get people to Jesus. So are you the person that sees the house is full and says, I'll come back another time? Are you the person that the Lord nudges you, asks you to talk to that person, and your, your flesh says, has for you this 17 checkoff list of why you can't? Has, has your, your soul put God's mission in a box? God is a creative God. He's made us as creative people. Sure, some of us are more creative than others. But he wants to use your God-given creativity to see people get to Jesus. Use our creativity. Secondly, use, have an urgency about this mission. They were urgent. They must do it today. They can't just wait till tomorrow. They can't wait till the next day. They can't wait till two weeks from now. They need to get their friend to Jesus today. I don't think I have to remind us about the urgent needs in our community, around our world. Billions of people unreached with the gospel with no hope of having somebody talk to them right now. There's thousands in our city living below the poverty line. There's lives being unjustly taken inside and outside of the womb on a regular basis, on a daily basis. And we all have neighbors on our streets but you know if Christ returned today, if the Son of Man returned today, they would not live eternity with Jesus. The needs are infinite. But I want to spend my last few minutes about an urgent mission that has burdened my life. And that's this. 
to reach a generation of students desperately to be seen by us and be told they're loved by God, to reach a generation of students that, that are desperate to be seen by us and are loved by God. As Pastor Nate often gives us a landscape of missions, every October during REACH, my hope in a few minutes is to give us the landscape of students and burden us to be on mission to get them to Jesus. So I don't wanna speak for students, I wanna speak from students. So I surveyed students the last few weeks just to ask them, what would you wanna tell student? What would you tell the next generation? What would you tell College Park? And so I'm gonna read quite a bit but I want you to hear from them. They describe themselves as a trendy and anxious generation. They want to, be, they want to see the world change. They want to pursue this, this emptiness they have in them, but it feels like it's never ending. They long to be seen and to be heard. They are the TikTok and YouTube generation. That means that many of this generation seek to be seen through mediums like social media, and it's what's called TikTok famous or YouTube famous. 20 years ago, it was really tough to be famous. But today, a 15-year-old with an iPhone is all you need to be famous. Our teenagers are seen more than ever, but known by fewer and fewer people than ever. They sense a judgment from us as adults. They think we see them as unreliable and untrustable. They sense that we believe that we're, they're addicted to technology and too emotional. Schools and relationships are like mountains. They're always climbing but never reaching the top. They seem impossible. They'll never measure up. They fear they'll never meet the expectations of the people around them or their self. On top of that, they wake up every single day and open up social media, constantly comparing themselves to other people. The pressure and anxiety is daunting for many. And it paralyzes them. They're in a spiritual and emotional paralysis, some of them. And many of us, while we just tell them to get over it, the number of suicide among teenagers continues to climb. Now, according to the CDC, the second leading cause of death among teens. And over 60% of our students told us they experience mid to high level anxiety on a regular basis basis. This is not theoretical. This is real. We have student leaders on our ministry that go to houses in the middle of the night because a teenager has called them and told them, I'm considering suicide. And that small group leader just goes to the house, sits with them to make sure they're safe. That happens regularly. It's not theoretical. It's real. And when we ask our students what, what, we want, what should we know about them? Here's what they said, and these are quotes. We're trying our best. We have a lot on our plates, just like you do, and when you are our age, just give us some grace. Believe in us. Just because we say we're fine doesn't mean we are. We need help. We don't know when to ask for it. Oftentimes, reasons we don't reach out is because we've been hurt by unhelpful or even dismissive responses to whatever we're dealing with, be it anxiety, depression, or suicidal thoughts. It's really, really hard to be a teenager and be a Christian. 
And on top of all of this, LifeWay's newest research tells us that 66% of the students, not mattering what their life situation is, will not be following Jesus after graduation. 66%. And my call for us as a church my call for us as College Park Church to this data, to the student that feels that no one sees them, to the student that feels that no one cares, for the student that isn't, hasn't have anybody to simply sit with them in their pain, for the student that see, feels like they have no one to talk to, for the student that feels shame for expressing their doubts in God or suicidal thoughts, my response to them on behalf of us at our church is not if we have anything to do about it. I want to call us as a church for student ministry to not just be something we do, but a mission we're on. And this mission is urgent. Let us not be the religious leaders on the inside of the house more concerned about the hole in the roof than the person coming to Jesus. Let us not be the people inside the house telling the students to get off the lawn. Let us not be the the people inside the house telling them to get there on time next time like we did. Let's be a church that says this mission is important. And it doesn't take rocket science. When we ask them what makes you feel cared and loved for, they didn't say six flags. They didn't say all these fancy, new, creative things. I said this, when someone listens to me, when I go to youth group and I'm greeted by many people who genuinely care how I'm doing, when someone just simply checks in on me, I'm convinced rising before us is not a degraded, crazy, sinful, gonna ruin the world in the future generation. I believe before us we have a generation that'll change this world in a good way. I've seen it, I've seen them do it, I've seen them work. I've seen students go over to their friend's house the day they had surgery and spend the night with them on a futon and care for them in the middle of the night and go to work the next morning at 6 a.m. That happened this week. That's the next generation. This mission is urgent. And parents, the weight of this is not lost on me for you. You're juggling life and walking a tightrope. You don't understand what your student's going through. You don't get it. You don't see their life, and you, it's very confusing. And at the same time, you're trying to care for them. You have your own struggles in yourself. You have your own struggles at work. You have your own sin you're dealing through. You have your own marriage you're fighting for. And that's why you're not called to parent alone. The church is called to raise up the next generation from birth to, to, to eternity. So maybe God is inviting you to step into this mission. Maybe it's simply when you're in the atrium and you see a teenager asking them how they're doing. You don't know their name, you don't know what they're going through, you don't know what their life's like, but you still ask how they're doing. Maybe you're in a small group and you're, you're your small group leader or somebody in your small group has kids or teenagers, you can say to that parent, hey, I can't commit to a lot, but I would like just to be another spiritual influence for your kid. I'd like to pray for them. Let's just ask them how they're doing. Maybe get coffee every once in a while. Or maybe I've convinced you you need to join the team on student ministries. Maybe you can't serve every Sunday night. We'd love for you to be a small group leader or serving on Sunday night. But maybe you say, I just want to I just want to be and help students. 
or creating, launching a new ministry, new creative ways to help serve students through counseling and discipleship. Say student calls us and says, I need somebody to talk to. A parent calls us, I need somebody to talk to, but they can't make this Sunday night or they don't wanna talk about it in a big setting like that. We're creating a, a counseling ministry that students can fill out this form and they can get help immediately. And to do that, we need people. We need an army of people that says, when we call them, hey, we, this, this girl is going, their parents are going through a divorce. They just need somebody to talk to. Hey, this, this kid just got baptized and would like to talk to somebody about how to follow Jesus. That could be you. So if, you, if that's you, if God is inviting you into that, you can go to yourchurch.com forward slash students. And there's a form on there you can fill out. And that form doesn't make you a leader. It just invites you into the process. I believe helping students is the most joyful, encouraging, rewarding parts of the things I've ever done in my life. I can't wait for 10 to 15 years from now and see what the church looks like. Because we as a church decided that this isn't just something we do. This is a mission we're on. So I ask you again, church, what will you do to get people to Jesus? Or more precisely, what are we willing to do to get the, get the next generation to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I love you. Thank you for not letting barriers keep us from you. Thank you for the people in our lives that tore roofs off to get us to Jesus. Well, I can't wait for you to come back. But until that day, give us steadfastness, give us fuel, and may we abound in grace, faithful to your calling, burdened by your people, in love. Praise in Christ's name, amen.